All righty. Boy, can you believe September is coming to a close and we're moving into October already? Anybody believe that? <laughs> like, whoa, how'd that happen? How'd that happen? All right. Well, anyway, we're going to stop time, so to speak, as we go into our meditation experience to just really prepare ourselves for the experience that God would have us have today. You know, I, as you might suspect, spend quite a bit of time and thought each week in preparing the message that I'm going to give to you, and that continues after all of these years to be a really important thing that I do. And yet, what I also know is what happens to you when you're in this room in meditation and a thought crosses your mind or you get guidance or some sort of insight, to me that is even more important than anything anybody could share from the platform. And that is in part why our meditation experience is so really very important. It's a chance for you to really get quiet in community and listen in deeply to what God by whatever name you call God, would have you know. So if you've not been with us before or it's been a while since you've been with us, our meditation includes a chanting time. It includes the practice of mindful breathing. It includes a little bit of the heart math lock-in technique. It includes a brief time in complete stillness and silence. And I'll guide you through each of those pieces. We're going to get started here in just a moment, but if you've just come into the room, do take a minute to double check and make sure that your phones are on silence so that it, they don't go off when we're trying to be in meditation together. So having said all that now, find a comfortable position in your chair, and if you need to scooch around a little bit, feel free to do so. You do want to make sure that you're sitting nice and straight in your chair. It's important for your body to be straight. And that's less about meditation. It's more about the body itself, letting the body get out of the way, so to speak. Let your feet rest flat on the floor. It is beneficial to not have your legs crossed. And then go ahead and let your hands rest comfortably in your lap in whatever way feels natural and comfortable to you. And then go ahead when you feel ready and to close your eyes. And just let the simple act of closing your eyes be a signal that we're moving into a different experience together. That together we're choosing to close out the outer world for now. And we're choosing to turn our attention inward that we might be more anchored in the awareness of the divine presence within and that we might be more open to what that divine presence would want us to remember today. So go ahead and take a deep Steady breath in, fully aware of the inhalation. And as you begin to let that breath go, practice the feeling of letting go. And as you take a second conscious breath in, noticing the breath, and then noticing the breath as you let it go, Practice the feeling being here. Noticing the breath again as you take it into the body temple. 
and then following the breath as you let it go, practice the feeling opening up. Continue to be aware of each in-breath and each out-breath. Ever so mindful, ever so present. Letting go. Being here. Opening up. Letting go. Being here. Opening up. Throughout the chant, keep your attention focused on each breath, no judgment, effortless effort. If you notice that your attention has wandered, gently bring your attention back to the very next breath. Mindfully present.
Continue to deepen into this time of quiet and peace. Continuing to be aware of each mindful breath. Continuing to release and let go. Continuing to open to the experience, the insight, the clarity, the understanding that spirit would have you have today. When you feel ready, allow your attention to drop into the area of the heart, the center of your chest. Imagining each mindful breath moving in and through the heart. Quiet and still. open and receptive 
quiet and still, open and receptive. We've been journeying together in an exploration of wholehearted living, an exploration into being more open and vulnerable. And so in our meditation practice, as we move into a time of silent practice, I'd like to ask you to hold the feeling of compassion Hold that feeling now, compassion. And so often we think of compassion for another, compassion for our world, and that is right and good. However, for now, in this practice, I invite you to hold compassion for yourself. Compassion for yourself. Breathing that in and breathing that out. Compassion for your journey. Compassion for lessons well learned. Compassion for the part of you that might be angry at times or judgmental, negative. Compassion for the self that still makes mistakes, still has shortcomings. But knowing that you are more than all that And so for these next few minutes, still aware of each breath as you take it into the body and each breath as you let it go, attention focused in the heart, your heart. Practice holding the feeling of compassion for yourself in the silence, in the silence.
let the sounds of the music signal that it's time to bring your meditation to a close. Take a moment before you do so to feel the feeling of gratitude, appreciation for being able to sit in a beautiful and peaceful place with others of like mind and heart, to be in meditation as a family. And then after you've experienced that feeling of gratitude, take a nice deep breath in. And just let that breath go and open your eyes when you feel ready. Maybe move around a little bit. And maybe even turn to the person to either side of you or in front of you to say namaste. Namaste. The God in me meets and greets the God in you. So we have been exploring together Brene Brown's book, Daring Greatly. And we have been looking at what it means to learn to get comfortable with being vulnerable and why getting comfortable being vulnerable is so important. Brene Brown is a researcher. And part of what she has spent her life researching is what is it about people who live wholehearted lives that is different from those who do not. And in her extensive research and the many, many interviews that she has done in that work, she has found that those who have learned to live more wholeheartedly are those who have also learned how to be comfortable being vulnerable. They are not afraid to show up and to be seen. They're not afraid to step into the arena of life, even if the timing isn't perfect, even if they don't feel completely ready, they are willing to step in and do what they are being guided to do or do what they know they need to do in their lives. Today, we're going to be taking a look at the idea of how do we drop the shield Brene says most of us are walking around with the shield trying to protect ourselves from being hurt, trying to protect ourselves from ever feeling shame or embarrassment, and so we walk around with this shield. And the challenge with that is that shield that we think is protecting us from ever being hurt also keeps us playing very small, keeps us from being able to really connect in any sort of meaningful way deep way with another person. It keeps us from being ourselves and being seen. And so she explains that we need to learn how to, we need to know what those shields are, what makes up the shield, and we need to be willing to begin to peel away some of the layers. And we're going to take a look at two very specific things she talks about. But a little bit of a recap. She speaks about this importance of vulnerability. And she says that vulnerability is to be scared but to do it anyway. It is to not know how, but to try anyway. It is to feel self-conscious, but show up anyway. It is to not have a clue of the outcome, but take a risk anyway. It is to be afraid of getting hurt, but opening up your heart anyway. It is to feel naked, but be authentic and real anyway. Vulnerability, that kind of vulnerability, doesn't come too easily or too naturally for most of us anymore as adults. You know, at one time it did. 
When we were very young children, we had no problem being ourselves. That's who we were, naturally, authentically, easily. We were comfortable inside of our own skin. And somewhere along the line, for most of us, we started to become self-conscious, didn't we? We started to pick up on things that about us that maybe we were told somehow weren't okay. And for many of us, we have grown into adults that do have a shield around us that keeps us from really being authentically ourselves or letting ourselves be truly seen because we are so afraid of being hurt again. That deep beneath that, for many of us, is this feeling of not quite good enough. How many of you remember John Bradshaw, the teacher about 30 years ago, out of the recovery movement, that did so much work? In fact, I think he really was the first to speak and teach broadly and deeply about the topic of shame and the consequences of shame. His best-selling book, Healing the Shame That Binds You, was all about the toxic shame that many people are living with because of having been abused as a child or having experienced some sort of trauma in their life or some sort of serious neglect and how many of them turn to drugs or alcohol to try to numb that. And so his work 30 years ago was all about shame, but more shame out of a very toxic kind of experience in the past. And he helped a lot of people to begin to move through that. Brene Brown's work is a little bit different, though it's still on the topic of shame. Brene Brown's work is more on what she would call normal shame. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Say that with me. Normal shame. She says it's kind of like a low-grade fever. It's kind of often always there, and it basically stems from this feeling that many of us have of just how, just somehow not being quite good enough, not smart enough, not strong enough, not successful enough, not good-looking enough, not thin enough, not pretty enough, not handsome enough. What are some of the other not enoughs? There's plenty of them, right? Just somehow not quite enough. And that not enough feeling keeps us holding back and not stepping into the arena and not really living wholeheartedly like we would have or did when we were a child. What's that song? I think it comes from a song. To sing like no, to dance like nobody is watching, right? As a child, we did that, did we not? Hold all my calls, please. As a child, we did that. We would sing even if we didn't know how to sing, right? We weren't afraid, but somehow as an adult, we've clothed ourselves or shielded ourselves from being comfortable trying, being comfortable doing new things, being comfortable letting ourselves be seen. So Brene suggests that there are two pieces in our arsenal that keeps us from being seen. And the first, I really struggled with this. When I first started looking at this in her work, I really struggled with it. She calls it foreboding joy. I would never have thought to associate those two, two words together. Foreboding joy, say that with me. Foreboding joy, foreboding joy. 
She says it's foreboding joy or the paradoxical dread that clamps down around momentary joyfulness. Let me read some descriptions to you and see if you can relate to what it is she's saying. It's a little bit like what we mean when, when people say, waiting for the other shoe to drop. Things are too good, and if they are too good, they're about to, something's going to happen to take that away. She says, for example, you're realizing how much you love your partner, and suddenly you're overwhelmed with the fear that your partner will leave you. You're standing over your baby's crib feeling overwhelmed with love and then the visions of something terrible happening to him or her suddenly fill your mind. You're feeling how good life is right now and then you see your life taking a really wrong turn down a dark alley. You're really loving your job, finally, but suddenly you're paralyzed by the realization that in this economy it won't be too long before you get downsized right out of it. You're so excited because you just got engaged and immediately on the heels of that excitement is a dreaded feeling that your fiancé is sure to find out who you really are and dump you like a hot potato. The doctor tells you your cancer went into remission and after a moment of relief, a wave of dread floods over you that the doctor is wrong and the cancer is still there. She calls that foreboding joy. She calls that when we're in the midst of something really great in our life that all of a sudden we entertain all of these worst-case scenario thoughts. And I struggled, as I said to you a moment ago, when I first read this in her work, and I thought, I don't think I can relate to foreboding joy. And then, just last night, as I was putting my notebook together and going back over my stuff one last time, I thought, oh my God, I did that for the better part of the beginning of this year. I did that after John and I sold a house that we had lived in for 18 years and really made a home. We were divinely led to a beautiful home that we bought, more special than anything we actually could have ever imagined ourselves being in. And when we finally got all the boxes unpacked and we worked with somebody who was helping us to make it look even more beautiful, suddenly I found myself for quite a number of weeks walking through this house saying, oh my God, I'm going to turn 60 this year. John's going to turn 70 this year. What in the world have we done? We may not be here long enough to enjoy it. <laughs> and I thought that more than once. Several times, as a matter of fact. And I think I might even eventually shared it with John. And as I'm thinking these thoughts, I'm saying to myself, who the heck is this? This is not who I am. This is not everything I've practiced my entire life, or almost my entire life since 17 years old, since finding this teaching and this path. And then I realized that's what I was doing. I was in a moment of, wow, everything is really special. And then that human doubtful thought creeping in uh, oh my gosh, what if something horrible happens? Let me think it now so I, don't ha I can kind of nip it in the bud. I can, can beat it, you know, deal with it right here and right now. And that's what Brene says is one of the things we do that keeps us then from actually experiencing joy and wholehearted living in the moment. And at, can any of you relate to that? 
after I talked about it at first service, I can't tell you how many people got it way before I got it. And they just told me all sorts of stories about, well, if you were raised Catholic, you know what foreboding joy is. Or no, the Jews have foreboding joy more than that. And I'm not either, and those weren't my words. Those were words from some of our members today. They know we, we really got that. We really got that. We really understand that. But the beautiful thing is that in Renee's research, what she found is she talked to the people who would experience some of that foreboding joy that the ones who didn't stay there and wind up dismantling the good in their lives were what they practiced was a very key practice, the practice of gratitude. That was the antidote, the practice of gratitude. Say that with me, the practice of gratitude, the practice of gratitude. She writes, even those who have learned to lean into joy and embrace their experiences, their good experiences, are not immune to the uncomfortable quake of vulnerability that often accompanies joyful moments. They've just learned how to use it as a reminder rather than a warning shot. What was the most surprising and life-changing difference was the nature of that reminder. For those welcoming the experience, the shudder of vulnerability that accompanies joy is an invitation to practice gratitude. An invitation to practice gratitude, to acknowledge how truly grateful we are for the person, the beauty, the connection, or simply the moment before us. In other words, to really take it in, not to shut it down by thoughts of fear, but to take it in with this sense of deep appreciation, deep gratitude. She went on to say that she learned more about gratitude from those who had lost and suffered the most. That's probably not surprising to those of us in this room, is it? She said she learned more about gratitude from parents who had lost a child. She learned more about gratitude from those who had suffered serious, significant trauma. She learned more about gratitude from those who were dealing with a terminal illness. She says their unified wisdom was this, be grateful for what you have. Don't take what you have for granted. Celebrate it. Don't apologize for what you have. I know that's one that I have to practice better. Maybe you do as well. Don't apologize for what you have. Be grateful for it and share your gratitude with others. When you honor what you have, you're honoring what I've lost. When you honor what you have, you're honoring what I've lost. This is coming out of the research of people who have dealt with this feeling of foreboding joy by practicing gratitude, even in the midst sometimes, or especially in the midst, of experiencing significant loss or hardship. So the first part of the arsenal, she says, is foreboding joy. And the second part of the arsenal is perfectionism. Say that with me. Perfectionism. Is there anybody in this room besides myself that can relate to the word perfectionism? Raise your hand if you can relate to the word perfectionism. Okay. I found her explanation of perfectionism so very helpful. She begins by telling us what perfection, perfectionism is not. 
She says, perfectionism is not the same thing as striving for excellence. Breathe into that. I was so glad to hear that. <laughs> it's not, it's not the same thing as striving for excellence. So we can still strive for excellence. To strive for excellence in our marriage, in our relationships, in our careers, in our sports, in our hobbies, it's a good thing. It's not about striving for excellence. It's not about healthy achievement and growth. Breathe into that. So we can still grow. We can still desire to grow, to unfold, to be more and better than what we already are. She says it's not about self-improvement. Perfectionism is a defensive move. Perfectionism is about trying to avoid disapproval and earn approval. Take that in for a moment because that's really important. It's not about striving for excellence. It's about trying to avoid disapproval and or trying to earn approval. When we are doing whatever we are doing and that is the motivation, then we are protecting ourselves with this barrier of perfectionism. We are trying to look perfect, be perfect, act perfect, not because we are striving for excellence or growth, but really, in a way, because we are afraid. I'm afraid that somehow if you really see me and I'm not perfect, that somehow you're going to criticize me and you're not going to like me or you're going dis to disapprove of me. Well, guess what? You might anyway, <laughs> right? But what a burden, what a burden for our heart and our very soul to live in the kind of fear that says, I've got to try to be perfect in all ways so that you will approve of me or you will not disapprove of me. How many people today still suffer from that, right? How many people still suffer from that feeling, somehow I'm not good enough, and I've got to be better, translated usually means i got to be perfect so that you don't hurt me with your criticism or your disapproval. So many of us were raised in a in an environment, if you will, that perpetuated this unrealistic and completely unhealthy attempt to be perfect so that we would either gain approval or avoid disapproval, that we would get the love that we didn't feel was coming any other way. To live in these ways, to live with this feeling of foreboding joy and to be waiting for the other shoe to drop, or to live from this place of trying to be perfect just as an avoidance technique of disapproval is to live with a really deep wound. And when we live with a really deep wound, there's no way that we can be living the life that we are meant to live as beings that God loves, as beings that God loves. You and I are already enough right now. And that's not said from a place of, of vanity or a place of ego. It's not said as an excuse to not continue to, to grow, but to grow for the right reasons. It's not said to keep you from striving for excellence, but to make sure that you're doing that for the right reason. I think that some of the deepest work we need to do as individuals 
as families, as communities, as nations, is to really get clear on where our woundedness is and to do the deep inner work to heal that. This past week, I had the joy of meeting with two powerful women, not at the same time, separately. One of the powerful women I met with, what she and I were absolute best friends in high school. We went to Patrick Henry High, just not too far from here, and were dear, dear friends. When Rhonda graduated from Patrick Henry, she went on to college, she studied at Harvard, she went to medical school, she became a medical doctor. And for the past 35 years, her focus has been in her medical practice. We had lunch this past week, and I knew things had been shifting and changing for her. And the work that she's doing now, Virginia, she went and took the same life coaching program that you took because you had recommended it to her. Her whole focus is changing because in all of her years as a medical doctor, though she was able to accomplish a lot of good, what she found again and again in her patients was that there was so much that they needed that was not about medicine, that was not about their physiology, but it was about their soul. And as a doctor, she can't talk about soul the way I can talk about soul. And her work now, as she is transitioning out of medicine, is to be able to work with individuals who are wounded, who are wounded. I thought, isn't that fascinating that she and I, she sounds more like me now. <laughs> who would have ever thunk? Medicine, part of it is beginning to change. And many of our leading doctors today are beginning to realize that working at just the level of the body is really incomplete. I had the other joy of meeting with a friend and a member of our community who is an outstanding therapist. And she was sharing with me some of her journey and some of her insights and deep, deep, deep growth as she has worked to improve some of her primary relationships through the cauldron of fire and challenge. And she has shared with me how all of her psychological training has certainly served her very well and helped her to help a lot of people. But it only goes so far that she is feeling the deepest calling to be able to say to people, where are you wounded? And how do we help you move that through that wound, not just cognitively, not through behavior modification, not at the level just of doing, but at the level of beingness? And as soon as we stop talking about levels of doing and start talking about levels of beingness, we are talking about what it means to be spiritually awakening and awake. What a convergence, at least in my life, of these two powerful women coming at the same thing in a way that you and I are attempting to practice and explore in our own lives but one through the avenue of medicine initially, the other through the avenue of psychology, recognizing that really the wounds, the shame, the hurt, the shielding that so many of us put up is a result of spiritual issues that need to be dealt with spiritually. Does this make sense? Does this make sense? All right. I want to close this exploration that we've been doing on vulnerability with just a couple of invitations and then, then a quote that's very meaningful to me. One of the invitations to you is to really use this place, to not just dabble here and not just come occasionally, 
but to really use this place. Get involved here and let this be your safe place because it really is. It is a safe place to show up. It is a safe place to be vulnerable. It is a safe place to be who you are and to not be judged, to be loved and to be accepted. Use it. One of our members left this morning and said to me, this is the only place where she really feels all the time good enough. And that good enough feeling helps her to deal with all those other places in her life, her work, for example, and some of her family of origin issues, where she's not getting the message of being good enough. So use this place. Lean on one another. We're here to support each other. No one of us, including myself, is perfect in any way. But we are here to love and to support each other, not in perfectionism, but in striving toward excellence in whatever areas are important to, to you and to me. The last one I want to share touches upon a point that I made in our meditation time when I was having us practice a feeling of compassion. And I wanted you to practice compassion for yourself because it's so easy for us to think about compassion for others, and rightfully so, but we also need to include ourselves in that picture. And so in practicing compassion for yourself, I ask you to also be compassionate about those places where you've messed up. Anybody in here not mess up? We've all messed up, sometimes an awful lot and sometimes pretty seriously, but to be compassionate with ourselves around that, to do what we need to do to clean that up or to make amends so that we can move forward. The quote that I want to share with you is actually part of a line in a song, and I think it deals with the fact that we all have flaws, we all have shortcomings. My job isn't to point out yours, and your job is not to point out mine either. And your job isn't to point out the flaws to the person next to you, even if you really hope they got what that reverend was saying this morning. That's between them and God. I know, I know, because I do the same thing, okay? But that's not what we're here for. So these are some words out of um, Leonard Cohen's song, Anthem. There's a crack in everything. Think about that. It refers to your woundedness my woundedness. There's a crack in everything, but that's how the light gets in. That's how the light gets in. And because of the great metaphysicians we are, we also know, and that's how the light gets out. How the light gets out. Namaste. <clears throat>